Holy Spirit, open up these words so that this freedom that we've just sung about would penetrate and permeate every part of our lives uh, and get on everyone and everything around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is good to be together again. Thank you uh, for coming, those of you who are in person, and thank you to those of you watching uh, on our podcast. We're so glad that you are part of this as well. Um, We're in week two of this summer training series where we're studying the book of Acts and really learning how to put flesh on this good news that we've just sung about. We've just proclaimed that God has overcome, that all things are being made new. There is hope where there wasn't hope before. How do we put flesh on this reality? The Messiah has come, that he is here with us now. It's much more than some big religious idea. In fact, what we kind of come to see early on with with the church as it develops, as it grows, and yes, it's warm in here, so whoever's in charge of that, Um, (laughs) if you're watching online in an air-conditioned office, well, great. Um, What we come to see is that early on, the church is kind of trying to make sense of this reality. How do we uh, articulate the good news of Jesus, this, this thing that has happened to us? How do we share this? With the world, and it becomes evident quickly that, that God has decided that his church is basically plan A, that his people are plan A. Jesus and his church are plan A. You are God's plan A. Isn't that terrifying? Right? Because I've, I've gotten to know a few of you over the last few years. <laughs> and, and some of you, not all of you, but a few of you have issues. Um, you know, and you've gotten to know me, and you know without a doubt that I've got some issues, and maybe more than the average person, maybe even more than Scott Dudley. I don't know, but <laughs> wow, it's good. Scott would know that he would love to know that you're defending him like that. Um, <laughs> we've got our issues, right? So the idea that we're Plan A for God's rescue mission in the world—that's a little scary, but it is also really good news because it means if we're going to be kind of the messengers of this, the carriers of this good news. If we're going to embody this, it means that God's very presence will be with us. He'll be with us. He'll be for us as he is now. If we're going to be his evidence, he's going to be with us. And that's what we see here at the beginning of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit shows up. This gift of God himself in us shows up. And it creates this incredible scene, this incredible scene. The good news has put on flesh, and it's Jesus. And Jesus now calls us to put on flesh to this same good news, us. That's some really good news, but it's, it's some news that takes getting used to. We, it takes a, a lifetime to actually get used to this, to learn to embody this good news. It doesn't come naturally. But the point is that we come to experience this good news, not to just think about it and, and sort of know about it or even just sing about it. It's actually like it's true for us. That it would be so true of us that it would penetrate, it would permeate every part of our lives, and it would just overflow out of us onto those around us. God lives in us, through us, making himself known. But, but how do we actually go about embodying that good news? Because we know it doesn't just, we don't just stand there and it just sort of God's love oozes out and then everything's made better. Like, how do we actually do this? How do we learn what can, uh, to take what can feel so comfortable sometimes inside these walls? Uh, some of the language we use that we're just so used to, some of the songs we sing we're so used to. How do we take that and translate it to a world that does not speak that same language, does not have that same experience perhaps? When I was in high school, I took a year of French. 
And when I was in college, I took a semester of Spanish. That comprises all the formal language training that I've had. So sure, I can say, bonjour, mon ami, que pasa? <laughs> a lot of French and Spanish speakers here, all right. Which means, hello, my friend in French, and what's up in Spanish. And that's great, it's kind of fun, but um, it doesn't help you find a bathroom in Mexicali when you really need one. And we'll share that story later. Um, it certainly hasn't done me much good in interacting with the much wider world. When Katie and I were first married, we, we spent some time in Kenya, this really, really remote part of Kenya. It was 13 hours uh, by a few different buses out to the edge of Lake Victoria from Nairobi. And uh, it was part of a water project she was working on. And we didn't speak a word of Luo, which was the, the native language. Uh, and, but we did our best, right? You might have been in those situations where you don't speak the language, but you do your best. And it's amazing what even kicking around a soccer ball, how that can connect you, and um, how sharing a meal can connect you. But still, it was really frustrating not to be able to speak the language. Even more frustrating was the fact that the only Mzungus, the only white people that a lot of the kids in that village had seen before, were these Italian nuns who lived a few miles away. Italian nuns. So everywhere Katie and I went, we'd walk around and we'd kind of smile and wave and that kind of thing, and all the kids would run up to us and go, ciao, 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 ciao. At one point, I got so frustrated. That's uh, Italian, by the way. <laughs> At one point, I got so frustrated, I said, we're not Italian, which sounded exactly like, la, la, la. It meant nothing to them, right? You're white. You're Italian. What are you talking about? That language barrier was so frustrating. Language barriers are frustrating. They keep us from connecting. They keep us distant from one another. They keep us from entering fully into life-giving relationship. And in the passage that Rich just read for us, we find the disciples celebrating together as the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, as God's love breaks in in a brand new way, making, them po- making it possible for them to speak in languages they'd never learned. How great would that have been in school, Right? You're getting ready for the Spanish test? I haven't worked on this a bit. Holy Spirit, boom, A+. plus. That would be so great. They're able to do this. And as this is happening, a crowd starts to gather. They've, they've heard the noise. They've, they've heard the wind. They've heard these guys, these Galileans, speaking in their native language. What's going on here? This crowd is composed of Hellenistic Jews, God-fearing Jews from all over the Middle East. Areas we would now know as Iran, Iraq, Syria, that kind of thing. They're, they're coming from all over to celebrate the feast of the first fruits, this, this annual Jewish celebration that celebrates God's providence of how he would take care of his people. And in Acts chapter 2, we see these, these Jews who have been practicing the this, this same religious tradition for thousands of years come together and boom, God's love breaks through in a brand new way among Jesus' disciples. And it causes these Galileans, these fishermen, these Gal- this, this language was just, just despised. It was the language of the lower class. It sounded awful, like Galileans speaking their own native language. And what do they say in those native languages? They speak of God's inbreaking love. They speak of the same stuff we just sang about, that God has overcome and will overcome. He has overcome. He will overcome. We have every reason to hope in spite of how things may look. They speak of all things being made new and whole because of Jesus' very presence with us through his Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that scene? It'd be like walking into old middle school 
and hearing all 80 languages represented in the Bellevue School District together celebrating the goodness of God. And that's being able to understand that and hear that. In other words, it would be something that would just blow your mind. It would blow our minds. And that's what happens in this crowd. They're, they're hearing this go on. They're, they're seeing the scene and they're just like, what? Now, some in the crowd, just like some in every crowd and some parts of us, wants to give a rational explanation of what's going on here. Right? So a few of them say, well, they're just drunk. They're drunk. That's why they're doing all this sort of thing. They're drunk. There's got to be a logical explanation for this. They must be drunk. In that culture at that time, it was uh, normal to take your first meal at about 10 a.m. So when Peter starts sharing, uh, you know, it's, they're not drunk. It's not even 9 in the morning. He's not, even, he's not saying, like, you're not a bunch of lushes like you are. They're just saying, this is not what God is. This is, this, no. Many others start to recognize that this is a supernatural event. There's no logic here. There's no reason here other than God's love breaking through. And as they hear this good news of Jesus being proclaimed in their own language, it prompts them to ask, what does this mean? Because it must mean something important. Like this, this means something big, something new, something different. What does this mean that this is happening? Peter goes on and to describe to the crowd what's happening. He, he gets up after a little bit of this kind of this chaotic celebration scene. He gets up and says, let me tell you what's going on. They're not drunk. They're not drunk. Here's what's actually happening. This whole thing is a symbol of God's love breaking in in a brand new way. It's a symbol of God's love breaking through to people we always thought were on the outside. It's a symbol of God's love now being extended to anyone and everyone who wants it. That's what's going on here. It's a symbol of God's love slicing through every human barrier in order to touch every human heart. That love that seemed so long to be reserved for just a few. Now anybody who wants it gets it. Their minds are blown. This is incredible. This changes everything about everything. As we'll see as we study Acts even further over the next few weeks, as we've seen over the last 2,000 years, Jesus does indeed change everything. God's love broke through. God's love is breaking through even right now. Even right now in this very moment with whatever's on your mind and your heart, that stuff that feels heavy that doesn't seem possible to be fixed, God's breaking through even now. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news that we've been invited to, to taste and see and to carry around in our own bodies, to put flesh on. But in the same way, these early disciples, as we look at Acts, these early disciples struggle to know how to articulate this. This thing that seems so familiar to us and it might be really comfortable for us, like, how do you translate that? different languages, different cultures, different experiences. How, how do you take that to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your friends, even to your family? Sometimes that's the hardest place to take good news, to your family. And we know that often instead of love, we communicate judgment. Often instead of this hope for all, we kind of communicate exclusivity. 
We turn people into political issues. We turn politics into measurements of who's in, who's out. Ooh, that becomes really important to us. In the contemporary church, just as in the early church, we face some serious language barriers that keep us from expressing God's fullness, God's love in the context of those outside the church. And too often we use that language, whether we speak it or we act it out, that is simply gibberish to those outside of the church. So what are some of those language barriers? I think a a big first one is this, us and them thinking. I grew up in a tradition where um, we really believed there were just two kinds of people in the world. There were Christians and there were non-Christians. Those are the two kinds of people. And Christians obviously had the inside track. We had all the right answer. We knew that we were right. Everyone else was wrong. We had that unofficial sort of club membership in heaven. And then there were the non-Christians. And non-Christians, they didn't know Jesus. Um, You know, they had no real hope. They were of no eternal value. And they listened to secular music. Right? Those were the non-Christians. Ah, some of you. Um, My understanding of God's love was really broken up in these two very black and white polarizing categories. And that that view of humanity uh, twisted some things. And it meant that, that I thought wrongly about some things. And for one thing, it, it kept me from engaging people who believed different things than I did. It was just kind of like, oh, those people, they're not even safe to be around. My, I might, like, pick up their false beliefs and become, and, and it'd be... It prevented me from growing any deep friendships with people of other faiths. It kept me from seeing how God was at work outside of the churchy ways that I thought he was supposed to be at work. Like God's supposed to work this way. Turns out he's working all kinds of ways. Have you had those kinds of us and them thoughts? The problem is, and and the great theologian Bono captures this perfectly. He says, there is no them, there's only us. There is no them, there's only us. He's a prophet. Isn't that awesome? It echoes what the apostle Paul wrote in Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same big leaky ship and it's going down we all are in need of jesus one of my favorite preachers daryl johnson puts it this way he says there are two kinds of sinners in the world those who break the law and those who keep the law and both stand in need of a loving savior us and them thinking keeps us from seeing uh, ourselves as part of the entire human story. And it keeps us from seeing people who believe differently than we do. It keeps us from seeing how they're part of God's great story. Us and them thinking is a language barrier for the church. Here's another one. Focusing on boundary markers. What I mean by boundary markers? I mean those behaviors that we use to determine who's in and who's out. Right? We've got those. Again, kind of bro- growing up in some of that black and white tradition, there were some very clear things, right? If you smoked, mm, out. You use bad language, mm, out. You listen to secular music, you're out, right? I also knew that people who went to church, who owned a Bible, and who had a Christian fish on the back of their car were in, <laughs> right? That's what it took. That's what it meant. The problem was, as I got older, I met a few people who had smoked, who occasionally used foul language and even, God forbid, listened to secular music. And they were followers of Jesus. And I also met some people who owned Bibles and went to church all the time and, and drove cars with Christian fishes on the back, and they were jerks, right? 
It's none of you in this room, but over in that service, I'm talking about people. No. It, it doesn't work that way, right? It took me a long time to realize that the boundary markers I often use are not the same things that God uses. He can see a heart in a different way than I can. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, he was criticized by the religious leaders, by the religious types, by people like you and me for not honoring the boundary markers they believed were appropriate. Look, Jesus, we've, it's always been this way. Here's the line. You're crossing the line. Jesus got in trouble for that again and again. He was regularly caught in the company of these outcasts, these mis- misfits, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these sinners. Jesus always extended his love for people well beyond what his followers thought was appropriate. I wonder if he still does. Which means we got to think about these boundary markers we have. These, these kind of mental blocks that we have like, oh, he did that, he's out. I think Jesus says to us, don't worry so much about who's in and who's out. That's my business anyway. You stay away from it. Instead, love with everything you've got. Love, love, love. It's love that covers a multitude of sins on both sides. Love. One more. Two more. A big language barrier. Another big language barrier is this. Kind of an incomplete understanding of or experience with uh, the good news of Jesus. A lot of us know a lot about Jesus. I know a lot about Jesus. I've been a church kid my whole life. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm much more loving. Hasn't always translated into being kind of more honest or, or kind of more reliable, those sorts of things. You probably know that experience too. I'm a firstborn son, which means I, I regularly like, take pride in how well I kind of get things. I, I want to do it perfect. I want to get things right. I want to behave right. I'm kind of like that older son in the prodigal son story. The one who, when the younger son comes home after ruining his life, ruining his father's reputation, he comes home, the father celebrates, wraps his arms around this son, restores him to a position of power. It's, it's an expression of this is, this is what the father's love looks like. I'm the older son in that story who says, da, 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 da. no, 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 no. I've been working for you hard my whole life. I've stayed here the whole time. I've kept the rules. I've done all the right things. And you haven't thrown me a party. Talk about missing the point. That's me. I don't fully understand grace like a lot of us who have grown up in the church. And so it's hard for me to extend grace. It's hard for me to forgive. It's hard for me to do something for someone without expecting something in return. At least a thank you. At least a like on Facebook. Something. Give me something, right? That lack of understanding and experience with God's love, it can be a real language barrier for the church. Because we talk about things we don't necessarily feel, haven't experienced. That's tough. There's one more that I wanted to point out. It might be the worst of all. It's this nasty, sneaky little thing. It's this, too busy. We're too busy. We've got so many good things going on, and, and most of them are good things, but our calendars are so full, there's just not space for each other. There's not space. And I don't mean this to be a condemning statement. This is not a condemning statement, so don't hear it that way. This is just a reality. We're busy people in a busy part of history, busy part of the world, but it can often be too busy and create this language barrier. It can prevent us from being able to demonstrate the fullness of God's love because we're just, we don't have space for other people. 
Well, here's some of our language barriers. How do we go about removing those things? Because we kind of recognize ourselves in some of these things, but let's, let's now go, okay, uh, let's, God's up to new things. Let's be doing new things. Well, I think there's one thing that slices right through language barriers. It's, it's very simple, but it's profound. It cuts right through every artificial human divide that we've created, and it's this. It's practicing radical hospitality. It's practicing hospitality to one another. Radical just meaning it, it costs us something, right? In terms of time, energy. When God demonstrates the fullness of his divinity, he does it by taking on flesh, by becoming a person. He draws near, he touches, he speaks, he welcomes in. In the person of Jesus, we see a God who demonstrates what love is like by extending his hospitality. All are welcome in to my life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter gets up and explains to the crowd after the passage that Rich read. We know this is kind of crazy. We know this sounds weird that you're hearing these languages. Let me talk about what this means. And then he quotes this Old Testament book of Joel. And it's a passage that would have been very familiar to his audience. Very familiar because it describes the Messiah and what Messiah's coming would produce. It says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All people. He then goes on to detail that it means young and old, male and female, slave and free. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, in a culture where only older, free men were kind of given the respect, the authority, the power, in a culture where that was true, the idea that young men and women, are you kidding me? And slaves, they've all got the same invitation to be part of it. As Peter unpacks this radical invitation, we see some radical things happen. Scripture says this, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number. That day, people hear good news in their context, in their language, and they respond. 3,000 get added. You think we've got parking issues. That's an administrative nightmare right there. But it's also great news, right? This is what happens when people hear the good news of Jesus translated into their context. Well, then how do we do that? We want to be part of that. Four quick ideas. I think the first is this. Look and listen. God is already at work. We're we're coming into a story late in the game, right? It's already going on, the action. So we're looking for where he's already at work and how we can join him in that. God's love is already pursuing every person on the planet. That's part of the good news, too. So how is he uniquely pursuing those around you, your coworkers, your neighbors? How is he inviting you to show them some of that radical hospitality in order to make his love more concrete for them? A second thing would be this. Learn your neighbor's names, rhythms, celebrations. Here's what I mean by that. I mean, learn your neighbor's names. Rhythms and celebrations. It's not, it's not like rocket science. And my apologies if you're a rocket scientist. What I mean by it is it's just like get to know your neighbor. Take some initiative. Might be your, your next door neighbor. Might be a cubicle neighbor. Might be somebody you regularly interact with, that, that, that uh, one uh, um, uh, checkout clerk at the, at the grocery store, whatever it is. Like learn some of their name. Learn some of their story. I don't mean spy on them with binoculars and take notes. I mean like... Notice what God is up to. Be intentional. 
Sometimes when someone new moves into the neighborhood, Katie and I will, will take some cookies and we'll write a little uh, uh, note and just say with our name and our, our phone numbers, things like that, and just, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. It's a way of just saying, we see you, we value you, here's some cookies. Like, simple. Hospitality. Take the initiative. Third thing would be this. Include neighbors in your family rhythms and celebrations. This feels a little weird at first because aren't, aren't some of those things like holidays and birthdays and anniversaries, those are kind of like private family things, right? Well, what if they didn't have to be? When uh, our son Ryder was born, what's up, buddy? When he was born, we, we decided that we wanted the neighborhood to sort of be part of his life, to be part of our life. And so on his first birthday, we invited much of the neighborhood we kind of extended the welcome all over. And, and most of the folks we didn't know that well. And many of them came. And they were surprised and they were delighted to be invited. And they felt loved by this invitation. It kind of deepened our connection with them. That stuff doesn't have to be just for us. It can be a blessing for all of us. Birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, all of them are these great opportunities to practice this kind of radical hospitality. To put flesh on the good news of Jesus who comes near. Last would be this. Practice receiving hospitality. As Americans, we're, we're a little bit better at, at giving it. Like, we like that position of power. We like to help people. We can help people. We'll give money. We'll do big things. Here's a project. Here's a website. Here's our Kickstarter campaign. Whatever it is, right? To be on the receiving end creates opportunities for that person to, to serve you create some really powerful bonds between people. When we, we kind of are authentic about our need and a- ask for and receive help. Or maybe you're like me and you've got some invitations that have sort of stacked up. Hey, I'd love to hang out with you. I'd love to get lunch. We'd love to do dinner, but kind of keep putting it off, you know, and it's been six or seven years and you're just like, I should get to this. What would it mean to do just that? Radical hospitality is what God showed us in the person of Jesus. And that good news changed everything about everything. And it's the same kind of radical hospitality that helps us embody this good news to a world that is desperate for good news. It's good news for us, only if it's good news for the rest of the world as well. And I can imagine that as I've been talking, maybe a name or a face has popped into your mind of a neighbor, a coworker, somebody you regularly interact with. And, and I would invite you to ask, What is God up to with that? How might he be at work there? How might he want you to show some radical hospitality to that person in the next week? Might be just learning their name, learning some of their story. Might just be a friendly smile and a wave to a neighbor you you normally see passing by. Whatever it looks like, God wants to remind you that, that he is actively at work pursuing every person on the planet and you and me. It's his work. He's making all things new. And the joy, the good news is that we can be in this with him, alongside him. So as we close up, I just want to pray for us. That we would be filled to overflowing with this kind of love. That every language barrier would be removed. That Jesus' love would be made known known in every context, every culture, every language. That as we experience good news, we would naturally carry that on to others. So would you pray with me? Jesus, overflow is effortless. And most of us are working so hard to get life right and to do it right and to believe the right things and to live the right things 
that I confess I don't have much space in my heart to just overflow with your love. I don't feel very filled with your love. So I ask that you would do that once again, or maybe for some of us for the first time. You would fill us to the point of overflow, and out of that overflow, may our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, where they come to see you so clearly, that they would want in as well. God, thank you that your good news is for us. Thank you that your good news is for the world. To that same good news, as best we can, we just say yes. We want it. We want to share it. Do that in Jesus' name. Amen.